This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, August 5th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Virginia Allen. What are the realities of living in a communist nation? Gilvana Shalamas grew up in the Soviet Union and experienced the realities of communism on a daily basis. He joins the show to explain what life in the Soviet Union was really like and why he's so passionate about teaching young people the principles of economic freedom. Today, Shalemas runs the Foundation for Economic Education, an organization that teaches young people about the power of economic freedom. He explains how students can get involved and learn the truth about free markets. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. And now, on to today's top news. The Biden administration is working to find a way to replace the expired federal evictions ban. On Tuesday night, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention imposed a new moratorium that is intended to prevent evictions in counties with high rates of COVID-19 until October 3rd. But already, the legality of the moratorium is being questioned. One day before the CDC announced the new moratorium, Gene Sperling, one of President Biden's economic recovery advisors, said, To date, the CDC director and her team have been unable to find legal authority even for a more targeted eviction moratorium that would focus just on counties with higher rates of COVID spread. In June, the Supreme Court ruled that extending the CDC's previous moratorium past the July 31st deadline would exceed its authority unless Congress passed legislation to allow it, which it has not done. Biden said he was also unsure of the legality of the move, saying Tuesday whether that option will pass constitutional measures with this administration, I can't tell you. I don't know. There are a few scholars who say it will, but others say it's not likely to. But at a minimum, by the time it gets litigated, it will probably give some additional time while we're getting that $45 billion out to people who are in fact behind in the rent and don't have the money. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, a Republican, says he wishes he didn't sign a ban on mask mandates. Here's what he had to say in a press conference on Wednesday via the recount. I signed it for those reasons that our cases were at a low point. Everything has changed now. And yes, in hindsight, I wish uh, that had not become law. Uh, But it is the law, and the only chance we have is either to amend it or uh, for the courts to uh, say that it has an unconstitutional uh, foundation. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is taking a stand for Israel and against Ben and Jerry's in the Sunshine State. In the wake of Ben and Jerry's declaring a boycott on Israel, DeSantis told Ben and Jerry's parent company, Unilever, that they have 90 days to reverse the boycott against Israel. If the company does not reverse the boycott, DeSantis says they will face harsh consequences, including barring Florida pension funds that hold investments in Unilever. DeSantis said, by placing Ben & Jerry's Fortune 500 parent company Unilever on our list of scrutinized companies that boycott Israel, Florida is sending a message to corporate America that we will defend our strong relationship with the Jewish state. Former President Barack Obama is scaling down his 60th birthday party due to concerns about COVID-19. 
The party, scheduled for Saturday, originally had a guest list of 475 of Obama's friends, but has been significantly pared down, according to Hannah Hankins, a spokeswoman for Obama per Fox News. Hankins said, The outdoor event was planned months ago in accordance with all public health guidelines and with COVID safeguards in place. She added, Due to the new spread of the Delta variant over the past week, the President and Mrs. Obama have decided to significantly scale back the event to include only family and close friends. President Obama is appreciative of others sending their birthday wishes from afar and looks forward to seeing people soon. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Gilvanus Shalamas as we discuss his passion for economic freedom after growing up in the Soviet Union. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Across America, we are continuing to see young people embrace the ideas of socialism. So with us today to talk about socialism versus economic freedom is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, Jilvanush Shalemas, or Z, as he likes to be called. Z uh, has also lived in the Soviet Union, so he knows firsthand the realities of socialism. Z, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Virginia. So you once lived in the Soviet Union. How long did you live there? Well, I was born in 81 in Lithuania, which was then occupied by Soviet Union and was part of Soviet Union. I lived there um, most of my life, uh, so I saw Soviet Union collapse, I saw what came after Soviet Union. So I think I have a pretty good first-hand experience when it comes to uh, how countries do under socialism and how countries do after socialism is kicked out. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. What do you remember about life in the Soviet Union? <laughs> life wasn't good. I mean, obviously, people make do. Uh, but if you ever wanted to see people disillusioned with socialism, I would say go to Soviet Union. And mm. those are those were people who actually lived in Soviet Union, people who actually saw what socialism brings and what it doesn't bring, I guess are the, are the fiercest uh, opponents of socialism. Because they don't buy all into this theoretical, all we, we, could li- we could be all living together happily nonsense. Because that's not what socialism is, socialism is about. Uh, if I, I wonder if these people today, these young people, the AOCs, the Bernie Sanderses, if, if they were actually transported to Soviet Union, transported back in time to Soviet Union, they would find that actual socialism is very, very different from the fairy tale uh, they keep on telling every day. Hmm. So what was the reality for you and your family? What are some of the things that you remember about day-to-day life and the challenges that you and your family faced? So, well, first of all, was shortage of living space. I mean, people in U.S., uh, uh, they have it good, and they had it good. In my story, my family, I was brought up in a one-room apartment. So that's not like a one-bedroom house. That's literally like a one-room apartment. I think if I translated that to square footage, that would be something like 
300 square feet, uh, basically was one room and one kitchen. That, that was it. That was the entirety of the apartment for a three-person family. Uh, so, and that was considered, actually, that was considered good. Many people had it even worse. Many people lived in what was essentially dorms. So imagine you, uh, let's say, a family of four, uh, two parents, two kids. Uh, you live in a basically one-room apartment, which is just one single room, which is the same. It's, it's your bedroom, it's your living room, it's your every room, and you have communal showers and a communal kitchen. Mm. Wow. And when you look back on your time there, on, on your childhood, are there any stories that that come to mind that you think capture, you know, pretty well the kind of day in and day out realities of living in a socialist nation? Well, there was the, there was this one time. Uh, uh, so in Soviet Union, the uh, May Day parades, May the first, the whatever, the International Workers' Day, that was very popular. And I mean, it wasn't really popular. People didn't want to go to, but government kind of ordered them to go. So I remember in uh, May the first, nineteen eighty six. My parents skipped the May Day Parade because they were not communists, we, and we, we went sunbathing instead. Uh, uh, so it was a nice sunny day. It, it would have been any normal day, but the thing is, five days before, Chernobyl nuclear power plant had exploded. Mm. And the only reason we were sunbathing and the only reason people were in the streets as opposed to hiding is because no one told anyone. Basically, uh, people did not find out about a nuclear disaster until the wet, until the radiation has reached Scandinavians and they started raising alarm bells. So that was that, that could that could be one way of describing Soviet life. No one tells you anything. Uh, government uh, basically brainwashes you from a from a very early age, and uh, government thinks you are disposable. Uh, you're not mm. you're not worthy of knowing. Uh, if you knowing that uh, Soviet Union just had an embarrassing and deadly disaster, that would somehow uh, you know diminish communism. So that's why they didn't tell people. So I think that was a pretty bizarre, uh, macabre, a very sad day. But I think that pretty much encapsulates what life in Soviet Union was like. Mm. And were people careful about what they said to each other, or did they feel pretty comfortable speaking freely and speaking their minds? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no. So let's say in the 1950s and 60s, you could probably get shot uh, for speaking, for saying the wrong thing. Uh, later on, uh, maybe put it in a psychiatric, psychiatric hospital. You see, Soviets had this thing that communism is the greatest thing ever. So if you don't believe in communism, you're either a foreign agent or mentally in, uh, incapable. So if you're mm -hmm. a foreign agent, well, that's you're getting shot. If you're mentally incapable, well, you're getting put in a psychiatric hospital uh, and put under various drugs, which actually liquefy your brain. Uh, so that was, uh, that was life in the Soviet Union. And no, no, people did not speak their mind. There was a whole, almost an art of saying what you want to say, but in such a way that the censors couldn't catch it or in such a way as you can sort of backtrack and say, well, that's not what I meant. So a lot of double speak or triple speak is entire, probably an entire art form of, of basically not speaking your mind or not getting in trouble for speaking your mind or hiding what you truly meant. And did you or your family know anyone who got in trouble for their political views? Well, we lived in a, uh, my parents were not involved in anything, so nothing like that but we knew a lot of people who tried to make a living on a side hustle uh pretty you know so, so small small sort of history note 
so entrepreneurship, you know, private enterprise was banned in Soviet Union. So if you wanted to do something, you couldn't uh, because everything was done by the state. So I remember my parents helping uh, neighbors to hide uh, jeans that they made themselves uh, in, the, in our apartment uh, uh, because when, pol when the police raids came in, uh, they would target the people whom they knew were entrepreneurial. So yes, my, my parents, I remember, I remember one night we were basically hiding uh, sacks of jeans uh, in our apartment uh, to help out our neighbors. So being an entrepreneur was a crime, essentially. Yeah, I think punishable up to seven years in, of, of prison or hard labor. Hmm. How did your time in the Soviet Union impact your views of economics and limited government? <laughs> well, like I said, people who've seen socialism are not fans of it. Uh, so I was always, uh, so I think I came out of that already pro-free market. Uh, and my life and experience uh, after Soviet Union uh, made me even more pro-free market. Uh, mm. I think the best, one of the best real-life examples of, you can see is what happened to the entire region after Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, so let's say my country of Lithuania, it went, uh, it created in the, in the past 30 years after the collapse of socialism. Once socialism was removed, I think we had an economic miracle in a sense of how, how people's standards of living have increased. In fact, people in the same generation who still lived in Soviet Union and who are still alive now, some of them, if they honestly looked at the past, uh, they would not really believe how much the standard of living has improved. And that was, once again, Lithuania did not change, people did not change. It's just socialism as this poisonous, disastrous, ruinous ideology was removed people's minds were freed. People could be entrepreneurs. People could make things. And that just basically led to economic miracle. And how did you ultimately end up coming to America? <laughs> uh, well, I studied in U.S. from 2001 to 2005. I was in Wesleyan, Connecticut, which is the lefty of the left schools. So in fact, I probably became even more hardcore free market here after spending some time, uh, after spending four years and essentially a very, a very left college. But uh, after that, I went back to Lithuania and uh, worked for Liberty since 2006. So I'm, a, I'm in the Liberty movement since 2006. Uh, I worked for Lithuanian Free Market Institute and I became the president of Lithuanian Free Market Institute in 2012. So we, we were, uh, we were and uh, that organization is still very successful in, the, in the policy and education. Uh, so after leading it for seven years, uh, I joined FEE in 2019 and became its president and came over to Atlanta, Georgia. Mm, wonderful. Well, in just a moment, we do want to talk about the work of the Foundation for Economic Freedom. You all are doing such good work. Uh, but, you know, in, in that transition, when you, uh, you came to the United States and sort of uh, began to study and became accustomed to America, what were some of the things maybe that surprised you or stuck out to you uh, when you know your childhood had been in uh, in the Soviet Union? I think the one thing that Americans have really got it right uh, it's uh, the concept of inalienable rights. I think uh, it's not just something on paper. I truly think that's something that most Americans believe. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the similar concepts are in constitutions of many countries. But I think in many countries, that's just uh, something on paper, as opposed to here, it's actually something that people believe in and something they're willing to fight for. So I think that's the, the, the very heartwarming, fascinating uh, thing that I observed. And once again, 
growing up in the Soviet Union or the empire of lies, uh, the fact that actually people actually believe in what's written in the Constitution, uh, that's very impressive. Yeah. Well, today, you know, in America, we are seeing that there's this increase, specifically with young people, there's an increased interest or fascination with socialism. Does this concern you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I, 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 understa- <laughs> Straightforward. I, understatement of a century. Now, of course, it's, yeah. of course it concerns me. Why do you think that young people are fascinated by socialism? Well, first of all, I don't think it's, it's they are confused, I think, is the problem, is that would be a proper term. I think if we sat down a bunch of 15-year-olds and explained to them what socialism really is, and we asked them, well, are those the things that you, that you guys want to fight for? Is this your ideal society? I'm sure they would say no. But what I think is happening with, with young people, and there are many sort of opinion surveys and studies to, to, to base what I'm saying, is that they are confused. So, for instance, if you talk to 14-year-olds, if you talk to 16, 18-year-olds, they actually they do believe in the American dream. If you ask them, do you, know, do you still think that hard work is a road to success? Uh, they all believe in that. Something like 80% of them believe in that. Uh, if you ask them, do you think that you have it better than your parents? Most of them still believe that. But I think mm. what actually is happening is that they're also living in this sort of informational field or informational society which every day hammers the point that uh, capitalism is bad or that somehow, or people, uh, ne- people use Denmark or Sweden as example of socialism, which of course is, is a complete nonsense, complete lie. You, you have the Danish prime minister actually telling, guys, we're not socialist, just you know, get it right, we're a free market economy. But you know, American left still kind of keeps on hammering home the point that it's Denmark and Norway and Sweden, these are socialist countries that we should be like. And of course, if you're young and you're 14, uh, you don't really have much exposure to what Denmark and, and Norway really are, nor have you spent really time distinguishing between what really socialism is and isn't. So I think that the, the silver lining, the optimism, the, the reason why I'm optimistic, I think, if you sit down a, a group of 16-year-olds and explain to them what socialism is, most of them would actually would not like it. Mm. So in, in your role as president for, uh, for the Foundation for Economic Education, if you were to you know, have a conversation with a high school student or a college student and explain to them what those key differences are between socialism and a democracy or capitalistic society, what would be those key points that you would hit on to really articulate to them, no, these are two very different things? Well, you know, the, the good thing is that we actually do that. So it's not just a theoretical exercise. <laughs> we, do, we do go to schools. We do talk to young people. Uh, we do talk to them in the classrooms. We do talk to them online, and we explain them what the difference is. You know, and the main difference is who makes the decisions. Who makes the decisions in life? Is it you, or is it the government? Uh, and uh, at this point, it's not really that. Uh, yeah. So the main the main difference is basically in capitalist society, as imperfect as it is. Uh, it's the people, or in fact, it's the individual that makes the decision that governs his life. In socialism, it's the government. And that, I think, is one, one key difference. Of course, later we can go into you know, who owns the means of production and all, all that. But I think, uh, once again, young people, as they should, they want to they think for themselves. They want to make their own decisions. And the fact 
that once again in capitalism as imperfect as it is and everything in the world is imperfect but they, mm -hmm. they have a choice to think they have a choice to do they have no choice in soviet union or in socialism mm -hmm. so like you say you work with young people you talk with high school students with college students the foundation for economic education you have a mission to inspire educate and connect really young people with the economic ethical and legal principles of a free society. But you all do this in a very creative way. You use so many different creative tools to really communicate these messages to young people. Tell me a little bit about the kind of work that you all do at the Foundation for Economic Education. Well, so some, you know, Foundation Economic Education founded in 1946. We did many things throughout our life, but I think about 10 years ago, said, well, what's the best value that we can serve the movement? And I think uh, the right choice was made back then that, you know, our movement, we're great at, at uh, writing white papers. We are absolutely awful at talking to young people. So how about if he becomes the expert in talking to young people? So the point is, how do we talk to young people? So we did a lot of research, and uh, I think we understand our audience pretty well. And there are two main ways how we communicate to young people. One is online, and the second one is in the classroom. And that's and the, the reason why we chose these two methods or these two modes is uh, because uh, this is where young people spend most of their time, in the classroom mm -hmm. or online. So for the classroom programs, that's relatively simple but very effective. We're kind of like the Uber of education. What we do is we find schools which want our programs, and we send a professor who goes to a public high school and spends about four hours explaining to them why freedom is better than uh, socialism or why what are the limits of a government and you know what is free society based on so once again so let's say last year i think we had we visited 200 classrooms like that and had about 20,000 students listen to this and once again this is powerful this is in a public school this is coming up from a professor uh for four hours uh definitely some people young people uh, learn something and what we poll them afterwards you know how did you like it did were these things new and to our surprise and actual horror something like 80 percent of young people say well i've never had liberty explained to me like this before hmm. which probably you know is nothing new but the point is liberty uh, right to decide for yourself freedom many people spend their careers smearing them and, the, and uh, young people have never heard these things explained to them like that, so that's where we come in. So that's our classroom yeah. thing. So are those classrooms all over the country? Yes, yes, we are basically, and we are of course a na national based organization, so it's everywhere from East Coast to West Coast to Mountain States to Mid-America. Uh, we are increasing our operations pretty fast in, in that area. And the good thing, uh, the encouraging thing, uh, so once again, last year we had about, I think, 200, 250 programs, and we had zero rejections. In fact, what we had is people saying, well, that's great, can you come back? Mm. And wow, that's excellent. That's encouraging. Yes. So that's our classroom outreach. And then the second large part of our outreach is what we call online. So we have Facebook operations, we have fee.org as a website, and we have YouTube videos. Uh, in which, once again, we take things that our that young people care about and we mix freedom and liberty into them. So let me give an example. So uh, 
young people care about movies and they watch Avengers and all these things. And I watch Avengers as well. I still consider myself young. Uh, the point the point is more young people care about Avengers than they care about philosophy of, of capitalism, a philosophy of freedom. So what we do, we take what they like, something like Avengers, and we explain the concepts of free market, capitalism, individuality, and all that through through the lens of the Avengers. I love that. No, just last night I was uh, on your YouTube channel. Um, these videos that you're talking about are, are called Out of Frame, and, and they're so creative and so well done. And I just thought, wow, what a creative idea and a creative way to really explain these big picture philosophical concepts to young people, uh, really to anyone, <laughs> in a way that, that is relatable and also really entertaining. Right, right. Yeah, and we have a small, we have a, a different channel as well. It's called Common Sense Soapbox. And those are snappier, faster animated series. And in which, in those ones, we, just, we've, we basically, we pull no punches. So the episode I really like is the one where uh, we explain the concept uh, that, you remember a couple of years, uh, last year, there was this nonsense that, you know, if you burn down the building, it's fine uh, because insurance is going to pay for it. That was during the riots. Mm. Uh, so we went all in and explained why this is nonsense, why it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And then you all have a podcast and a news outlet as well, correct? Uh, so I'd say, so news outlet, that's fee.org. So if you, yes. it's, if you like to read about news, if you like to read sort of our articles about the current happenings, that's at fee.org. Uh, podcast, that words and numbers, that's two of our professors once again giving their insights. But I would like to highlight uh, two other programs that we do, if you don't mind. So one of them is uh, uh, Revolution of One, and that's specifically aimed at uh, young African-Americans. And that's, uh, I would say, that's a wonderful program. Our spokesperson, T.K. Coleman, he really cares about this community. He really cares about uh, uh, young African-Americans advancing. And I think the message that he articulates really well is that capitalism is for everyone or free markets are for everyone. It's only in a capitalist system is that anyone can achieve anything. I think that's a very empowering message. Yeah, yes it is. And we also target, and we also target uh, uh, Spanish-speaking populations in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. You all are busy. You have a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just last May, we, I think we broke a world record for the largest economics lesson in the world. Uh, we had really? we had uh, ten thousand, nearly ten thousand students attend our four-hour economics event. Wow! And that was just open to everyone online. Anyone who wanted to join? Right, right. We we did a huge promotion. It was in Spanish, so we targeted the Spanish-speaking population. Some of them from were from U.S., others from Latin America. But basically, yeah, that was I think like nine thousand five hundred seventy-three students spent at least uh, an hour or so listening. To elect to these people explaining what economics is, how free markets work, why liberty is important, and obviously why socialism is not the answer. Uh, we are now in the process of certifying that with a Guinness Book World of Records. Wow, I love that. So do you have plans to do another one of those kinds of events? And uh, I would love to join if, if there's another if there's another one uh, lined up. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, right now, we are going through what we call the Entrepreneur Week. Uh, and that's going to happen. That's going to be happening in the uh, next week or so. Uh, and those are once again entrepreneurship 
empowerment, uh, individualism for, for young people. That's excellent. So if anyone is listening and thinking, okay, I, I want to get them to come speak at my school or at my child's school or at the school I teach at, uh, how could they go about reaching out to the Foundation for Economic Education to have one of your professors come and give one of those four-hour lectures? Well, just go to fee.org, uh, and it's pretty much all in there. Just uh, There's a form that you just basically ask us. That's the simplest way, I guess, to, to answer your question. Uh, but just go to fee.org, uh, go to programs, and uh, just look around our website, and uh, that you can definitely request a, a, a professor to come to your school, to your community, uh, and explain it. Great, great. And for those who are eager to, um, to check out your YouTube videos, to read your articles, all of that is also on your website, correct, at fee.org? Everything is there. It's a, it's a nice website. It basically pretty much encompasses everything we do. You can find videos there. You can find articles there. You can, hide, you can find teaching materials in there. So all the plethora of what we do is in there. Feed fee.org. Great. Excellent. And we'll also leave that link in the show notes. But Z, we really appreciate the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for your time and joining us today. Thank you. And uh, I want to use this opportunity to thank uh, what Heritage does. I think you guys do an amazing job too. Oh, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.